Thank you very much for inviting me to speak here and also for the fellowship. And I would like to start by saying that, contrary to my title, I will only be speaking about Hungarian paintings. But this particular trend, which I will be speaking about, has to be investigated in the context of Austrian culture always. And I hope that that will be made clear by my paper. And of course, Hungary at this time was a part of the Austrian Empire, so the two cultures are inseparable. In the summer of 1851, Józef Borsos, a Hungarian painter living and working in Vienna, displayed a painting entitled The Morning After the Masquerade at the exhibition of the Art Society in the city of Pest, Hungary. As attested by several sources, the painting was highly popular with the general public, but received mixed reviews, while some critics spoke admiringly of the superb execution and charming subject matter the anonymous critic writing for the Pest Inoplo, Pest Journal, expressed his profound disapproval. You can see, I quote, you can see that Borsos used to paint very good still lives because all the ornaments of a comfortable room are depicted with such masterly detail that you couldn't wish for any better. The clothes and the furniture are so lifelike that they seem natural. But the faces are rendered with much less effort and it seems that the clothes were painted first because all the artist's strength is gathered in these and he wasn't able to synchronize the faces with them. His critique is, however, not only aimed at the painterly qualities of the work, but more importantly, its supposed immorality. This new French chronic scandaleuse-like manner may appeal to many, and maybe these pictures are bought more frequently than other better pictures, as evidenced by the endless number of colored and black and white prints executed in this manner with which Paris is flooding the whole world. Maybe. But their appeal is only momentary, as that of a fashion print discarded the next day when we come across a prettier one. If Borsos used his undeniable talent to paint pictures that are less lascivious, maybe he would not have a prince as a patron, but he would surely benefit both morally and financially from giving up painting the pastimes of mistresses. He uses the French word maîtress. I do not have to go into detail to show that Borsha's composition is a work of the Rococo revival. It references, uses, recreates and reinterprets Rococo imagery in harmony with the vogue for the Rococo discernible in Austrian visual culture in the 1830s and 40s, now known in scholarship as the second Rococo. Zweites Rococo. The trend was most pronounced in the decorative arts, but as evidenced by Borsos' comp composition, it also manifested itself in painting, albeit sometimes in less obvious ways. Recent art historical scholarship on the Rococo revivals of 19th century Europe has suggested that, instead of simply a set of formal conventions and a specific imagery, the Rococo could be defined as a playful and sensuous attitude towards art, an attitude that did not have to be revived because it was always there as a kind of undercurrent, sometimes raising its head, at other times ducking down, but continuously providing a kind of antithesis that questioned the accepted norms of serious high art. Contemporary critics of the second Rococo mocked it for being anachronistic, for not conforming to modern life. After all, due to the turmoils of history, Society had changed almost irrecognizably since the time of the first Rococo, making those aristocratic rocailles obsolete. 
As the Austrian writer Karolina Pichler put it in 1842, what good was it to return to the pompous, inconvenient and unhealthy ways of an age long gone by? To revive fashions our mother's generation already laughed at 40 years ago. Yet, at the same time, the criticism Borsos pictures received bore an uncanny resemblance to the criticism aimed at Rococo paintings in 18th century France, for example, at François Boucher's works. Accusations of artificiality, immorality, superficiality, excessive sensuality, degeneration, and ephemerality were formulated in almost the same way in the 19th century as in the 18th. No matter how much society had changed, the irritation caused by the Rococo was similar, if not the same. This means that there had to be something behind the resistance against the Rococo that was essentially the same in 18th century France and in 19th century Hungary, making the second Rococo timely after all. Let me quote one passage from a French source written relatively late in 1787 because it summarizes the problem so succinctly. The taste for petite maison for voluptuous boudoirs that among the rich has succeeded over the representation and dignity of public morals, has inspired that taste for googles, has extended the passion for fantastic and licentious productions. The arts can only take on a new character for us when the nation itself becomes susceptible to more energetic forces. In France, when Boucher and his imitators were drawn to the frivolous and licentious genre, history was disdained, forgotten, one might say. The most conspicuous similarity between the review of Borchers The Morning After the Masquerade, which I quoted at the beginning, and this text, is their assumption that the paintings in question conform to the tastes of rich aristocrats, but there are deeper affinities between the two texts, revealed by the French author's evocation of the national public. The Rococo is a type of art that is useless to the community. It is a source of private pleasures that draw the individual away from the common cause. In this paper, I will attempt to trace the relationship between the Rococo revival and the emergence of the national public in Hungary, a relationship fraught with conflict. The mid-19th century was the age of the construction of modern national identity, which involved a quest to define Hungarianness as a set of essential, unchanging qualities. The visual arts played a major role in this process. They were expected to disseminate national imag imagery while also displaying stylistic attributes that would make the national school clearly distinguishable from the art of other nations. How did the Rococo fit into this process? How did its preference for sensual surfaces, its emphasis of the materiality of the subject and its assurance of deep meaning, its private subject matter, its frivolous, licentious imagery conform to or, to the contrary, disrupt 19th century conceptions of Hungarianness and of national art. Let me start with a painting that may not seem to have much to do with the Rococo at first glance. The Hungarian artist Miklós Barabás displayed pigeon post at the very first annual exhibition of the newly founded Pest Art Society in 1840. Barabás was already a successful portraitist who had, in the 1830s, painted the likenesses of many well-known personalities. Pigeon post depicts a solitary female figure in a frontal static pose and is, in this respect, not far from a portrait. However, instead of representing a specific person, it belongs to the genre of so-called ideal portraits, 
pictures purportedly depicting the essence of a certain type of person, a certain nationality, age, or sentiment, etc. Barabash's painting shows a young girl receiving a love letter by Pigeon Post. The female figure was interpreted as the ideal personification of her innocent young love in the exhibition reviews, as well as in the German poem published alongside the image when it was reproduced in a literary annual in 1843. At the same time, its symbolism must have seemed titillatingly ambivalent to those who recognized its visual precedents, explored by the art historian Katalin Schinko in a seminar, seminar essay. In her 18th and 19th century examples, some of them Rococo, the dove is a symbol of virginity that is often about to be lost. In Barabash's painting, the dove carries a love letter, thus becoming instrumental to an affair that might lead to the loss of the very innocence the bird is supposed to represent. The picture may be striving for ideality, but it also appeals to the sense of touch, much like Rococo art. It focuses on the girl's hands touching the bird's soft feathers, a touch that, in the light of the above symbolism, has definite erotic dimensions. This aspect of the picture is not, not discussed in any contemporary sources that I know of, but there is one review that takes issue with the materiality, the tactile qualities of the image. Daniel Novak, an art critic educated at the Vienna Polytechnic, first of all pointed out deficiencies in the use of light and shadow at the, and the anatomy of the figure, but what concerns us most now is his opinion of the draperies and the woman's skin. I quote, the draperies are not made of atlas or any other kind of cloth, but of wrought iron, or if you wish, brass, which is due to the deficient use of shadows, as the painter himself will have to acknowledge. As for the face, instead of exhibiting a natural blush, it seems to be covered with rouge or polish. Novak's main problem is with Barabash's supposed lack of painterly skills, his stiff, hard and unnatural way of painting. The clothes do have a certain plasticity, but instead of an appealing softness, they display a metallic frigidity uninviting to the touch. As described by Novak, pigeon post seems to be everything but Rococo. At the same time, Novak's criticism of the woman's unnatural complexion echoes the accusations aimed at Rococo paintings, most notably the works of François Boucher in the 18th century. Moralists often chided women for their excessive use of makeup. Thus, when Boucher's painted women were criticized for their unnatural cosmeticized complexions, this implied both that the painter had deserted the sacred path of nature in his art, and that his pictures aimed to please the spectator and draw attention to themselves in superficial, meaningless, artificial way, just like frivolous and coquettish women. Apart from Novak's critique, the pigeon post was well received and went on to become one of the most widely known Hungarian pictures of the age. Painted by the artist himself in several versions, it was also reproduced and published as a print in numerous publications. One of these was the album of Hungarian pictures published by Gustav Hekenast in Leipzig in German in 1852 and in Hungarian in 1859. This is an earlier print, but it is essentially the same. <laughs> the album was a collection of illustrations drawn by Barabash in the 1840s, mostly depicting various typical Hungarian figures and scenes. Two pictures, for example, show 
a Hungarian lady and a Hungarian noble maiden, respectively. In this context, the pigeon post can also be taken as the representation of a Hungarian girl, even though no explicit reference is made to this by either the title or the black and white image itself. Ideal portraits could be made of any type, old men as well as children, but most of them depicted beautiful young women of certain nationalities. As pictures of Italian, Greek or Oriental women were abundant in the visual culture of the time, the pigeon post could very well have been interpreted as a representation of a Hungarian woman when first exhibited, the painting. Hence the prominence of the national colors, red, white and green, in the picture. This aspect, however, is not mentioned in any of the contemporary reviews that I know of. To the contrary, in 1844, one critic expressed his regret over the fact that, even though an excellent painting, the pigeon post is not Hungarian in its subject matter. The public evaluation of the Hungarianness of paintings was made possible in the first place by the annual exhibitions organized, as I have mentioned, from 1840 by the Fepest Art Society, a civil organization founded just the year before. The society's aim was to spread the appreciation of the fine arts in Hungarian society. The lack of that appreciation had been oft bemoaned in the previous years. Art patronage was scarce in the country and the public for art undeveloped. Most artists had to move around the country in order to find commissions, and despite isolated instances of patronage or criticism, there was no real public sphere that would have made it possible to speak of a Hungarian art world at all. From 1840, however, the annual exhibitions provided a focus for discussions about art. The artworks displayed there could become widely known, at least compared to the isolation they had existed in beforehand. They were described and analyzed in the reviews published in magazines, and many of them were reproduced as prints. The society itself took part in this process of dissemination by purchasing one artwork each year and presenting it to the newly established picture gallery of the Hungarian National Museum, as well as publishing it as a high-quality steel engraving. The Art Society aimed to display a wide range of works regardless of genre and of subject matter by artists from both Hungary and abroad. At the same time, however, Simply by putting the works on view and thus initiating discussions and debates, it contributed to the rise of a new national canon and its institu institutionalization. The exhibitions made it possible to compare individual works, to assess the contribution made by Hungarian artists, to select the words, works deemed best and deemed most characteristically Hungarian. What was at stake was not just the definition of good taste, of good art, but also of Hungarian art. In the 1830s and 40s, the so-called Age of Reform, the establishment of the new modern public sphere was inseparable from the national movement in Hungary. Institutions like the Art Society itself, or the Academy of Sciences, the National Casino, just to name a few, were venues where the new type of national identity could be negotiated and promoted. It is worthwhile to draw a parallel that will at first glance seem extremely far-fetched with the annual salons organized by the Academy of Fine Arts in Paris in the 18th century. There is a crucial difference between the two institutions that warns us to be careful with any kind of comparison, 
The French Academy came into being as an institution related to the absolute monarchy. It centralized the art world while appealing to an imaginary, ideal public as an antidote to the model of private interests and tastes, in the same way as the monarchy, to quote Thomas Crowe, consolidated its centralized authority by delegitimizing the existing dispersed centers of power within the state. By contrast, the Pest Art Society in 19th century Hungary was a civic organization and was driven more by the aim to initiate modern commerce in the arts than by an attempt to centralize. It promoted the arts by aiming for diversity in the belief that displays of many different artworks would be sufficient to awaken the taste for the arts in the Hungarian audience. This is evidenced both by its statutes and by the lists of works exhibited. Its critics, however, attacked the society precisely for its lack of principles, calling for a more rigorous selection and demanding that not only the quality of the works, but also the nationality of the artist and the picture's subject matter be taken into account. We cannot speak of a chorus of critics. Viewpoints differed according to tastes, political affiliation and degree of literacy in the arts. What was common, however, was their belief that well-curated exhibitions had the potential to produce a national public capable of evaluating artworks based not only of stand on standards of taste, but also on a shared national consciousness. The exhibitions may have been venues for individual artists to sell individual pictures to individual patrons, but it was in the nature of the public ex exhibition itself that this could never be seen as their foremost purpose. Artworks displayed to the public, the national public, always stood for something more than themselves. This is why critics routinely bemoaned the overabundance of portraits at the exhibitions, pictures whose only purpose was to perpetuate the likenesses of individual people, as some critics put it, to satisfy their vanity, were of no interest to the national public. This is where it is possible to cite 18th century French anti-Rococo criticism as a comparison. Even though the audience has had virtually no voice at the time, both the Academy and its critics used the abstract concept of the public as a point of reference. Critics expected the art of the Salon to address the, that public, the nation, as a whole, demanding a moralizing and socially responsible art while the Rococo, a style thriving in private spaces, closely connected to interior decoration and characterized by frivolous, non-instructive subject matter, seemed to be everything but. In fact, as Gilles Cassit has shown, Salon criticism often used the boudoir, as in this quote, a semi-private space ruled by women and detached from the requirements of citizenship, as a spatial trope to isolate this non-public Rococo art from the public civic space, the public sphere that was to be embodied by the Salon. <clears throat> the exhibitions of the Art Society made it possible for pictures to become widely known and thus talked about, and to become, eventually, part of national imagery. Pigeon Post depicted a private, even frivolous subject, subject whose Hungarianness was, as we have seen, ambivalent at best. Still, appearing in the public sphere at the very first national art exhibition and painted by an artist who was by then a well-known actor of the emerging national art world, it gradually gained prominence as a national image. 
In the 1850s, it could be included in a collection of pictures that, taken together, constructed an image of the national character. At the same time, its tactile, erotic, artificial qualities subsided when it was transformed into a different medium, into black and white printed images. There was no conflict anymore between the metallic clothes and the sensual, sensual soft. Tactility and materiality gave way to iconicity. In 1855, Józef Borsos, an artist already known for his Rococo genre paintings, known both to the public and to us from the first picture, chose to exhibit his own version of Pigeon Post at the Pest Art Society show. Borsos had gone to Vienna in 1840 to study at the Academy of Fine Arts and had subsequently settled there, achieving considerable success as a portrait, still life and genre painter. Art life in Vienna and in Pest existed in symbiosis at the time and many artists travelled between the two cities. Borsos spent most of his time in the Austrian capital but showed his paintings in Pest almost every year, usually after he had already exhibited them in Vienna. Yet, in 1855, he only showed pigeon post in Pest, as if he had considered it especially appropriate for that venue. He may have wanted to appeal to the Hungarian audience and critics because he was deliberating moving home. He did eventually move back to Pest for good in 1860. But for all his efforts, the critical reception of his pigeon post was very negative. Reviewers thought it was flamboyant in its appearance and immoral in its subject. One of them called it a glamorous, fashionable work that could not, however, compete with Barabash's simpler but well-known and well-loved image. Here are the two side by side. Another reviewer characterized the woman in the picture as a coquettish senora who is evidently no sister of the gentle dove. He also chastised the picture's execution. Her bulging red silk dress shows such blown-up vanity that we are unsure whether it will be her or the dove flying away in the next minute. Finally, it is not really the woman who is immoral and coquettish, but the painting itself. This is the kind of product in painting as when, in company, a coquettish lady wants to draw all attention to herself. By referencing Barabash's painting, Borsos was probably trying to engage in competition with that classical work, aspiring to create a national masterpiece like his predecessor. His critics, however, did not even take note of that aspiration. Instead, in the public space of the exhibition, his painting was seen as a coquettish Rococo woman improperly putting herself on show. In 18th century France, she would have been told not to confuse the boudoir with the salon. There was, of course, some hypocrisy in this. At an exhibition, the works are displayed to capture attention, yet Borsos' pigeon post to seems to have drawn attention not as much to itself, I mean herself, as to the way in which exhibitions exposed private subject matter to the public, making the critic feel uncomfortable. With this in mind, I will now return to the morning after the masquerade, a painting that had problematized the relationship of public and private art, the salon and the boudoir, in a much more subtle way. The morning after the masquerade, today usually known as Girls After the Ball, 
was exhibited in Vienna in the December of 1850 and then in Pest in the summer of 1851. The picture shows six young women in a richly furnished boudoir, some of in negligee, relaxing, chatting, and looking at lithographed images. The title suggests that they have recently returned from a masked ball and must be discussing the goings-on of the evening. They seem to be completely absorbed in their conversation and behave nonchalantly, unaware of being watched from outside. The painting itself, however, was created as an exhibition piece and makes no secret of the fact that it is putting its subjects on display. The dramatic contrast of the light aimed at the center of the picture and the shadow that swallows the sides, a device used in many of Borchardt's paintings, acquires a special significance here. It renders the spectator even more aware of his or her own voyeurism, as if he or she was peeping through the keyhole. This, again, originated in 18th century Rococo imagery. Women reading lewd novels were typical subjects of Rococo prints. Absorbed in their reading, they are depicted in a state of ecstasy in disheveled clothes, unconsciously putting themselves on display for male onlookers. As a consequence of their frivolous pastimes, they become passive and helpless objects of the male gaze. Borsos, however, placed the voyeur outside the picture. In other words, he identified the beholder as the voyeur. His female figures are not passive and helpless, they are perfectly conscious, chatting about pictures in a personal space where they can quite reasonably expect to have their privacy. The beholder is an intruder. The exhibitions of the time were of course packed with depictions of personal, intimate scenes the spectator was essentially intruding upon. Scenes of love, grief or family life. Most of these images, however, did not problematize their own breach of privacy. The figures were there to be scrutinized and discussed by the viewers. They were not real people, but general examples. In fact, this is exactly what contemporary definitions of genre painting were based upon. In contrast to the unique great personalities seen in history paintings, the figures in genre paintings were supposed to be typical representatives of a nation, ethnicity, gender, age, social class, etc. The spectator could judge whether they were really typical, and he or she was also free to judge their conduct in terms of morals. After all, the scene was supposed to be general and not individual, and thus could be expected to provide a general moral applicable to similar situations. The morning after the masquerade is undoubtedly a genre painting, but what type of people does it represent? If what we said above is true, the starting point of the contemporary spectator's interpretational strategy must have been to classify the characters in terms of nationality, profession, age, and social class. It is, however, in the nature of the Rococo revival to make this difficult. Judging by the style of furniture, as well as the Rococo imagery, the scene should be set in 18th century France. However, in 1850, at the height of the second Rococo, it was impossible to decide whether the scene was taking place in the 18th century or the 19th, in France or in Austria. Or it would have been impossible had Borsos not placed glaring clues into the composition in the form of the, the 
the sensuous prints the women are enjoying so much. One of the sheets on the floor can be identified as half of a player of litter Eugène Gerard, published by Adolf Goupil in the 1840s. It shows an 18th century lady flirting with a coyly blushing young page, while its pendant, the one the girls are examining at the moment, so we can't see it, depicts an elderly gentleman making advances towards the maid. These were very well known at the time and the critics identified them when they saw the picture at the exhibition. Their titles are If Youth Knew and If Old Age Could. The prints were originally made in France but distributed internationally. Borchers painting shows versions marketed to a German-speaking audience. The caption on the print, Wenn die Jugend wüsste, is clearly legible and in German. It is legible on the painting, but I don't think you can see it here. Which means that the women in the painting are not 18th century French women after all. Their boudoir is most probably situated in a palace in the Vienna of the second Rococo. How, then, could the contemporary beholder identify the type they belong to? Well, the Hungarian critic quoted at the beginning of my paper had no qualms about identifying the figures as mistresses, mattresses. After all, they not only enjoy looking at pictures that are not meant for decent ladies, but also understand them very well, analyzing them as true connoisseurs. They seem to be all too knowledgeable about relationships between young women and rich elderly men. The critic is, however, even more specific, and this is where the boundaries between public and private become uncomfortably blurred. I quote again. If Borsos used his undeniable talent to paint pictures that are less lascivious, maybe he would not have a prince as a patron, but he would surely benefit both morally and financially from giving up painting the pastimes of mattresses. The text does not say explicitly, but hints quite obviously that the depiction of the mistresses had been commissioned by a specific patron, a rich Viennese aristocrat, and consequently that the women are not simply figments of the artist's imagination, but very real Viennese concubines. The prince in question, Borsos' patron, can be identified exactly. He is Prince Paul Anton Esterházy, the head of the wealthiest Hungarian aristocratic family, who is known to have patronized Borsos in the early 1850s and purchased the morning after the masquerade at the exhibition in 1851. Esterházy was respected in Hungary as a patron of the arts and sciences. On the other hand, however, he was closely linked to the Austrian court. An associate of Chancellor Metternich, he had been the ambassador of the Austrian Empire in London from 1815 to 1842. During the revolution in 1848, he was appointed as minister beside the, beside the king in the revolutionary Hungarian government, a role suitable for him precisely because of his close connections with the imperial family. He set up his household in Vienna where his significant art collection could also be seen and identified as a Viennese nobleman. No wonder the rich Rococo interior in the morning after the masquerade was associated with Esterházy's palace in Vienna. We happen to know that the critic was not the only one speculating about this. As recorded by the Hungarian painter Ferenc Ujházy in his memoirs, 
It was widely assumed in 1851 that the girls depicted in the painting were, in fact, Esterhazy's real-life mistresses. We have no way to check today whether this gossip was right, but I think it signifies quite well the interpretational problems that emerged once a painting, exhibited in the public arena, trespassed the boundaries between public and private, general and personal, typical and individual. At the exhibitions of the Art Society, paintings, at least paintings by Hungarian artists, were expected to contribute to the grand cause of raising Hungarian art to a higher level, possibly by depicting national subjects, but at least subjects of a general interest. The morning after the masquerade, on the other hand, self-consciously showed a very private scene, much like those that were condemned by 18th century French salon critics as boudoir art. The Rococo worked as a signifier of this unpubliqueness. As mentioned at the very beginning of my paper, criticism of the Rococo in 18th century France often connected it to the debauched lifestyle of an aristocracy chasing its own selfish pleasures instead of pursuing the public interest. The same trope can be discerned in the Pestinaplo review of Borchoff's work and at a very sensitive time. Two years after 1849, the defeat of the Hungarian War of Independence against Habsburg rule Bringing the world of the Viennese aristocracy into the whole of national art must have seemed like a travesty to this critic. It does not need much explanation that the Rococo style was conceptually bound to the aristocracy, even though, at the time of the second Rococo, fashionable Rococo objects were being made of cheaper materials, thus becoming affordable to the lower echelons of society. Before the revolution, Hungarian nationalist texts had often scolded the wasteful extravagance of the aristocracy, aggravated by the fact that the aristocrats were spending their money abroad, buying foreign luxury goods instead of supporting Hungarian industry. Descriptions of the luxurious homes of such families were commonplace in the literature of the time, and there is no doubt that the morning after the masquerade must have conjured up such memories in the nationalistically inclined Hungarian spectator's mind. It has to be said, however, that this is not formulated explicitly in the review. Instead, the painting is condemned for its, its Frenchness, to be precise, for its resemblance to licentious French prints of the very kind the girls are looking at in the picture. The supposed frivolity and superficiality of the French was one of the commonplaces of popular literature on national characterology in the first half of the 19th century. <coughs> along with the philosophical mindedness of the Germans or the placid disposition of the English. In the Austrian press, French culture was associated with a penchant for strong but empty frills, as exemplified by a quote from a piece entitled Scenes from the Salon by Ignaz Wulster. After this tirade, Wulster contrasts the salons of our forebears, our German forebears, who rarely used the word salon, and treasured real German customs and honest German sensibility with contemporary salons governed by French vanity and pompousness. Now, of course, I'm not talking about the salon exhibitions, but about the salon as a, as a room. Although he does not use the word rococo, his descriptions make it clear that both are rococo salons. Wulster simply ignores the French roots of the original Austrian rococo, the first rococo, 
He regards it as completely domesticated and connected to the age of Maria Theresa. The Rococo revival, however, was irredeemably French. Salon culture, Rococo and Frenchness were inseparably associated with each other. These stereotypes were also current in Hungary at the time, and we are probably not far from the truth in saying that if the Rococo revival was incompatible with national art, this was partly due to its perceived Frenchness and thus foreign character. It is, however, worthwhile to investigate this more closely. The central concern in Hungary was, of course, the definition of Hungarian character, which was often attempted through counter-concepts, by explicit or implicit comparisons to other nations. The two most important others, nations whom we should not resemble, are the French and the Germans. The French were usually characterized as frivolous lovers of comfort and luxury, while the Germans supposedly had a tendency to lose themselves in philosophical theories and flights of fancy. Both are prone to excess in their own way. By the 1840s, the supposed and desired, in other words, ideal Hungarian character, had become an important point of reference in critical discourse. The extremes of Germanness and Frenchness also reflected, according to this reasoning, in the cultures of those two nations, had to be avoided. To cite just one important example, the art and literary critic Imre Henselmann, who had, in 1841, also produced the most coherent theoretical essay on characteristically Hungarian art, wrote a series of vitriolic articles against performances of French drama at the Hungarian National Theatre, accusing these plays of substituting thrilling but empty effects for real dramatic conflict. The word effect came up often in contemporary critical discourse. It denoted artistic devices that aimed to capture the viewer's attention without also transmitting a deeper meaning. Effect was usually connected to the accusation of superficiality. With its tangibly glamorous luxury objects, its overwhelming splendor and dramatic use of light, the morning after the masquerade was a typical example of an effective painting. It was frivolous and thrilling, like French drama, tactile and flirtatious, like French rococo. That Borsos works had often elicited the label effect is also evidenced by an interesting and amusing image. I advise you to look at the details, but I am not going to name them. A caricature drawn by the German-born Austrian-Hungarian artist August Kanzi, originally Martin Kanz. Borsos is standing in, in front of his easel, which supports a tiny picture of a woman with ruffled hair in a huge, gilded, rococo frame, much larger than the painting itself. The inscription under the caricature reads, Das will ich in die Kunstausstellung dreingeben, es muss Effekt machen. I want to submit this to the art exhibition, it has to be effective. Effect is symbolized by the frame, which, although richly ornamented and glittering, is after all not an inherent part of the composition itself. Effect is a superfluous accessory that may draw attention to the work, but in a meaningless, gratuitous way. In my opinion, the dissatisfied painter, a studio interior by Borsos, 
addresses the same question. A contemporary review described the subject thus. The painting depicts one of the several bitter moments of an artist's life and does it so well that the viewer has to take pity of the artist instantly. In an eruption of pain, desperation and anger, the artist, unappreciated by the world, takes his sketchbook of which people are not worthy and wants to tear it up, while his wife, putting her hand on his shoulder, what a beautiful contrast that it is the gentlewoman who is doing so, leads him back towards art, pointing at his artworks with her other hand as a temple that provides the bleeding heart with a refuge and cradles it through the miseries of life. It is, however, not just a sketchbook the artist is about to destroy. He has already punched gaping holes into some finished paintings already framed. A quick overview of the painting's individual motives suggests that what is at stake is the opposition between artistic inspiration, idea, and finished painting, the spiritual and the material aspects of the work. It is possible to contrast the motives with each other along these lines. The artist is inspired by his wife, a real woman of flesh and blood, but before him, on the table, stands the statuette of the abstract allegory of painting, also personified in female form. His foot is treading on a book, a theoretical treatise or a literary work that could provide him with inspiration, while the table is filled with utensils needed to turn that inspiration into material form. And so on. These two aspects of art seem to be struggling with each other in the picture. The artist is crumpling his sketch and treading on the book, but has also destroyed the finished framed paintings. It is his flesh and blood wife who leads him back to art, but she does so without touching him and by pointing towards the spiritual allegory. The tension is not resolved in the details. The pendulum is swinging both ways undecidedly. Yet, as a whole, the picture is painted and finished with the meticulous care of characteristic of Borsos. In the finished picture, it is the still life painter, the painter of tangible materials, who is victorious. The painter is treading on the book, and Borsos painted the foot, the shoe, the crumpling pages with the greatest possible mastery. The dissatisfied painter is not a Rococo image, but, at least according to this interpretation, it extols the Rococo attitude, the frivolous pleasures of looking at pictures and carelessly enjoying their sensual surfaces. It can be no coincidence that the painter is sitting on a Rococo chair, an object evoking the connotations bound up with the style, connotations of frivolity, luxury and sensuality. But I have, in accordance with my hidden agenda in this paper, spoken much about frivolous pleasures and virtually nothing about bygone glories. It would have been possible to cite Austrian texts and images in which the Rococo evokes a nostalgia for 18th century pre-revolutionary Austria. I have not examined these now due to lack of time. Bygone glories will figure in a different way in my conclusion. In the Hungary of the 1850s and 60s, at the time of the establishment of the national canon of art, representations of national history were considered uniquely important. These images of bygone glories, or more often, past sufferings of the Hungarian nation, still have a decisive influence on our view of not only the history of 
19th century Hungarian art, but also of Hungarian history itself. Furthermore, the story of Hungarian art in the 19th century is still usually told so as to conform to another story, the story of the emergence of Hungarian national identity. I am not questioning the relevance of this narrative. After all, the significance of this 19th century process is evidenced precisely by the fact that it is still so decisive in our way of thinking. For this reason, it certainly merits extensive investigation, but that investigation needs to be critical. Seen as a subversive undercurrent, the Rokoko revival is capable of providing a point of departure for such critical inquiry. 19th century images of bygone glories still permeate the way we see ourselves. But will images like that of a girl reading in the woods by the little-known Alajos Györgyi Girgő, or even Pál Színyai Mersés, widely known in Hungary, and iconic Picnic in May, ever achieve the same kind of decisive importance in our national consciousness? The Rokoko would probably answer this question with, maybe not, but who cares? And this attitude, in all its non-instructiveness, still has a lot to teach us. Thank you for your attention.